And uh, again, I'll remind you, this will be the last week in Genesis for a little while. Uh, We're going to spend the rest of the month. There's five weeks in October. So we're going to spend the rest of the month looking at our mission statement, what it means for us to pursue the transformation of hearts by the power of the gospel, what it means for us to treasure Jesus Christ as our ultimate supreme desire and uh, uh, object of our worship, and what it looks like for us to teach truth here in this place and thus fulfill the Great Commission, teaching them all to observe what Christ has commanded. And then, Replant Sunday, we'll finish it all by saying we want God to receive all the glory in this place. And then, for the rest of fall, in November to Christmas, we're going to take a brief break from the Old Testament and jump over to a little New Testament letter called Titus. Titus. So we'll spend a few weeks in Titus and even Christmas in Titus, which I'm really excited about. So I just wanted to give you kind of a heads up. This is where we're going for the rest of the year um, from God's Word. Uh, So looking forward to that. Um, But I've started listening to a podcast this week. How many of you guys are podcasters? How many of you guys? eh, A couple of you. If you're not a podcaster, like where you been? Yeah. Uh, that is the thing. It came out in 2008, but it seems like nobody started podcasting till just the last few years. Uh, but um, there's this new podcast that recently came out called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Um, someone recommended it to me, and I've recommended it to Mariana now. She's listened to it. Uh, I haven't finished it yet, so I can't give you a full recommendation. But so far, what I've heard has been really intriguing, interesting. Uh, Mars Hill was a church that started in the early mid-2000s, I think, um, in Seattle, Washington, by a pastor named Mark Driscoll. Uh, Some of you might have heard Mark Driscoll. If you haven't heard of him, that's okay. You're not missing out. Um, He uh, was one of the cool, trendy guys back in the early 2000s that had a faux hawk, you know, and he wore all the cool clothes. Uh, You you maybe have have recognized him if you've seen a picture of him or something. Uh, But their church closed their doors, I think it was in 2014 or something like that, and it was an absolute mega church, blew up. Um, huge church. I think they had like over 10,000 members or something, multiple campuses, different states. Uh, it, it really exploded. Um, but it's a, in a, a podcast by Christianity Today that looks at the beginning of this church and what led to its demise. We live in the age of celebrity preachers. And what they are doing in this podcast is basically dropping the veil behind the pride and abuse of power and brand that these celebrity pastors are building for themselves um, and what goes on behind the scenes. And it's just so interesting to listen to as a pastor of a church of like 30 people, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Um, but one, there's some really good quotes in there. Um, yeah, there's a lot of good quotes. Mark Driscoll was a really loud preacher and said a lot of offensive things. He was grungy and edgy. Um, but... Uh, what was a different person being interviewed says basically what happened is the reason this church grew so much and so quickly like it did was because people preferred a narcissist for a pastor. People preferred a narcissist for a pastor. Because Mark Driscoll's goal and the whole goal of Mars Hill Church was to build their entire congregation, their entire church structure and format and polity and philosophy of ministry based off of him and his personality, who you know, was basically a stand-up comedian, right? And he said some really good things, and you sort of forget about the crazy stuff he's doing and that's going on behind the scenes because you hear some good truth being taught, and people are being manipulated. And 
Mark Driscoll is still preaching today and doing different things. I don't know what all he does, but um, very good podcast. I'd recommend you listen to it. Why are we so um, enamored with celebrity pastors? By, by people looking for a platform, insisting on their own way, and making a name for themselves rather than a name for the Lord. Why are we so attracted to this? Why does this grow a church? Uh, I'm not sure the answer to that question. I haven't finished the podcast yet. But as I've been listening to it, I saw a lot of Jacob's son, Judah. Judah in Mark Driscoll. Judah is who we're learning about today. Uh, Joseph had 12 children, and Judah was one of them by um, Leah. And we saw in chapter 37, Joseph was introduced, right? And he was the second to last born son, born from Rachel, who was spoiled and sort of, you know, a tattletale. And we saw his arrogance that got him in trouble. He was having these prophetic dreams from the Lord, but he was sort of boasting in front of his brothers. And he was ending, end up thrown into a pit and then sold into slavery. Um, and Judah was one of the dudes right there saying, like, you know, we need to sell him. We need to sell him. He was one of the outspoken ones. Um, and we learn a little bit about Judah's personality there. But then you ask, why does Moses get into Judah and his story in chapter 38 when we're talking about Joseph? And in chapter 39, it goes right back to Joseph, which we'll have to find out in 2022 uh, what happens to Joseph. Uh, but I think this is on purpose. Remember, we're learning about the lineage of Jacob. We learned about the lineage of Esau. Whatever happened to Esau, right? Then it was whatever happened to Jacob. Now here's what happened to Joseph. And now here's comparing the lives of Joseph with Judah. Judah, in chapter 38, goes to build his own empire. He leaves the family trade. He's tired of keeping sheep. He goes off to um, a different land, makes friends with an Adulamite, marries a Canaanite woman, and basically begins his own lineage. We don't know if the other brothers are having children. They may may not be. I don't know if Judah was first. Um, but we have insight here because it's important. Um, he has three sons, and uh, not from any three of them would the line continue, but through a mysterious fourth son that we find out about in this passage. Um, this is not recorded by accident. This is a really hard, strange, peculiar, confusing passage of Scripture. Um, the world looks at it, and they say, that's, the, that's your Bible? That's your book from God, right? Um, and and I, I've, I've talked with Christians. You know, this is, this is hard when you're, you're reading through your yearly reading and you get to Genesis 38 and you're like, what is the string and the babies being born at the end? And what, what is going on here? Very PG-13, if not rated R stuff. Um, and it confuses us. But we approach God's word knowing that it is a grand historical narrative tracking from God's creation, fall, redemption, and the final restoration, the future to come. And so we, we see different parts of the Bible, uh, different genres from history to um, uh, poetry, uh, the Chronicles, the Numbers, um, letters in the New Testament, the Gospels. We have to understand what we're reading. This is a historical narrative that keeps record of a lineage. And I believe that the Lord made sure Moses spent so much time tracking even Judah's life, which we don't know much after this, is because 
Matthew chapter 1 makes it clear where Jesus came from. We should have no question in our minds as to the ancestry, the validity of the Messiah who came from the tribe of Judah even through the Canaanite Tamar. Matthew chapter 1, you can read it, right? We have no question. We know Jesus' lineage. Of course, born of the Virgin Mary through the Holy Spirit. But we have Genesis 38 to tell us very clearly about Jesus' lineage. Also comparing um, Joseph's life with Judah's life. Because we're not going to be there for a while. But what happens in chapter 39, right? The famous Potiphar's wife scenario. Another incident of possible adultery and sexual sins that are tempting a patriarch, Judah falls. Joseph does not. And we see the comparison of these two brothers in various ways. And you know, another thing, when we, when, for those of you that have read this passage and you're familiar with the Bible, when you think about Tamar, do you think hero or do you think, you know, a, a, a nasty woman? Well, honestly, Joseph, uh, Nathaniel wants to answer. He thinks hero. He thinks hero. Why is that? Well, hopefully it's because he's read the Bible and not just been to Sunday school one too many times. Uh, but, but Tamar is the hero of the story. Not Judah, right? Judah was the immoral one. Tamar was the hero. And what we learn from this whole passage that we'll, we'll work through together is that those who seek to build their own empire, disregarding God's sovereign agenda, will bear the consequences of severe conviction and judgment while God continues His own plans of providence for those who fear His name. Judah leaves the family. He's going to build his own empire. He's going to make a name for himself. Conviction and judgment are the results. We have four displays of God's character here, even though God is barely mentioned in the whole chapter, right? He's mentioned sort of at the beginning uh, with what he does to his sons. Um, But we see the Lord's work in providence all throughout the chapter that I want to hopefully uncover for you. So the first one, display of God's character, is God's judgment on wicked husbands. God's judgment on wicked husbands. Husbands. The first uh, few verses we see um, Moses again is starting to talk about Judah's lineage. He, uh, two really important phrases here. At that time, Judah went down from his brothers and Judah turned aside to a certain Adulamite. And those phrases are, those prepositions are there on purpose, right? This is not just Judah going to sort of explore and have an adventure. He's leaving the family. He went aside. He turned away from them, right? This is the language of repentance, but he's going in the wrong direction. He's going to Canaan. He's turning away, and he makes best friends with an Adulamite, whose name was Hira, and he marries a Canaanite woman who we don't even know the name of, right? Her, her father's name was Shua, uh, but we never um, know her name. Um, or I guess the daughter of a, yeah, the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. Uh, that's, that's all we know. And she was um, ready to have children. They had three children together. 
Uh, don't know how long the time span was, uh, but their names were Er, Onan, and uh, Shelah. Er, Onan, and Shelah. The first five verses are establishing Judah's new family away from Jacob's. And Judah takes a wife in verse 6 for Er, his firstborn son. He gets to pick her out. So he goes among all the Canaanite women. He doesn't go back to Hebron and try to pick out you know, somebody of the family bloodline. He picks out another Canaanite for Er, whose name is Tamar. And it's really interesting that Judah picks out Tamar based on how he treats her later. He chooses her for Er. But verse 7 tells us that Er was wicked in the sight of the Lord. Er was wicked in the sight of the Lord. So what did the Lord do to him? The Lord put him to death. We don't know if he got run over by a bus, right? Fell into a, a, a hole. We don't know what happened. But the Lord killed him. While he was a living man on earth, the Lord judged him. Not after death, but before. And we don't know why uh, Tamar was chosen because of her beauty, her personality, uh, something that attracted Judah to her herself. Um, but Er was clearly undeserving of Tamar. We don't know what his sin was. We don't know what his wickedness was. But it brings to mind early chapters, right? Genesis chapter 6. The whole earth was wicked so much so that the Lord decided to send a flood to destroy all mankind from the face of the earth. And we flash forward a few uh, decades, chapters to Genesis 19 and 20. We see the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? For their obscene wickedness. And in both of these instances, early in Noah's day and in Sodom and Gomorrah, the people were doing two things. They were killing everybody and they were having rampant sex with everybody. So what kind of man was Er? What kind of man was Onan? People like the days of Noah. Their sin is unknown, but it is serious. And this brings to mind, doesn't it, um, Ananias and Sapphira? Even the New Testament. When um, the early church is collecting uh, a contribution for, for the saints that they would have no needs among them, that everybody's needs would be met. They had land of their own that they kept for themselves and did not bring before the Lord. And what did the Lord do to them for hiding this wickedness? The Lord judged them and put them to death. And this is a really strange thing. It's not something we should expect to happen. I'm not trying to teach a theology that if you do something bad, God might kill you, right? I don't think that's the overall picture of God through the Scriptures. Um, the Lord is incredibly patient, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. But he will not overlook the transgression of the guilty. Um, Psalm 55 verse 23 says, But you, O God, will cast them down to the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. But I will trust you. I think this is part of the Lord giving man over to their own depravity. They were depraved in their minds. The Lord gave them over to their lusts. And they are working a path of destruction for themselves that ends in death. We also see uh, a promise that long life is often a sign of God's favor 
uh, to those whom he loves. Now, it's not to mean that you live a long life, you must have been holy, or you live a short life, you must have been real bad, right? Uh, But in certain situations in Scripture where the Lord makes this clear and reveals this, we can trust this teaching from God's Word. Well, after Er dies, we have Onan who comes along, the secondborn, practicing what's called a Leverite law or uh, uh, the, the law of the kinsman redeemer, as maybe you've heard it that way. Um, the law was not set up yet. This was sort of naturally built in, I think, a part of, of, of humanity. Uh, in those early days, especially those who were trying to live godly and please the Lord, wanted to take care of widows. It was almost a natural thing, too, as the earth was... Um, Growing and, and they were called to multiply as many as the sands of the, of the ocean, right? And the stars in the sky, right? If, if the husband died before she was able to have children, they wanted to multiply. And so it was natural that the brother would take up that role as husband to make sure that the eldest could continue to have children. So that happens in Deuteronomy 25. It's spoken clearly in the law. We also see Jesus, right, confronted by some, some folks. And they're like, well, you know, what happened to this lady who went through all the brothers, who is she married to in heaven, right? And he's like, well, you guys have no idea what you're talking about, right? Um, but the point is that this was a regularly practiced law and, and thing from the earliest days that the widow would marry the brother. So Onan marries her for the sake of her having children and uh, continuing heirs' bloodline. But what does Onan do? Onan refuses to give her his seed and wastes the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And verse 10 says, What he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Judah needs to start feeling a little scared at this point, doesn't he? He leaves the family. He marries into you know Canaanite lands, which... All the ones before him were told, don't do that. He goes and does it. He sins first. He raises wicked sons who do wicked things. Onan did not want to give his seed to uh, Tamar because he did not want his children to be thought of as heirs. He wanted to be the firstborn. Uh, And that was his sin. Think about this. The sanctity of marriage is is huge, right? It's, it's, it's a really important biblical doctrine that we take so lightly. And at the same time, when someone dies in a marriage union, the Lord makes it clear throughout his word that that widow is to be particularly cared for in a unique way by the people of God. That is a regular theme. That's, a, that's God's heart for widows over and over and over again. And God cares for widows. And being a widow is a hard, difficult path. But think of the wickedness of these men that the Lord found it better to make Tamar a widow than to be married to either one of these wicked men. The Lord would rather have both of them wiped off the face of the earth and her made a widow and be treated terribly by Judah than her be married to these two men. Exodus 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. The Lord says to Onan, that's how you treat a widow? You get the sword. 
you get the sword. Widowhood is hard, but the Lord would protect Tamar. Think also of the dangers that you and I face in marriage. For those of us that have a spouse, how do you treat your spouse? Like honestly. And do you know that God sees your every interaction with your spouse? And and God cares about your marriage union so deeply that he wants it to thrive and he wants it to grow. But if there is sin in the marriage, he he will judge it. He will judge it. We should be more fearful sometimes of the way that we treat our husbands and wives than we treat anyone else. The Lord is watching our marriage. And we must treat one another as we are our own bodies, as Ephesians 5 tells us to do. How's your marriage? How's your marriage? I wouldn't say that the Lord is going to put you to death if you have committed adultery, if you have failed to love your wife well, or if you failed to love your husband well. But you should fear the Lord in your marriage. Fear the Lord and love your spouse. Second display of God's character, God's unusual providence, God's unusual providence. Look at verse 12. In the course of time, actually, let's back up a little bit. So uh, after Onan dies, verse 10, uh, he was wicked in the sight of the Lord. The Lord puts him to death. Then verse 11, Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Judah now gets the totally wrong impression. He thinks that Tamar is the curse instead of the Lord who's killing his kids. So he says, listen, I'll give you my third son because I know that's the right thing to do, but he's too young. So you go live in your father's house. When he grows up, you can marry him. But the text says he was scared. He didn't want Shelah to die either. So he sends Tamar away back to her father's house. When the Lord makes it clear that widows are to be taken care of. So Judah sends her away. His own sin is growing deeper and deeper and deeper. Well, in the course of time, verse 12, Shelah grows up. Uh, Tamar gets a schemy idea. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. So now Judah is a widower. Verse 13 Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and had not been given to him in marriage. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Uh, Judah did not keep his promise. Shayla grew up, his wife dies, and this is much like when um, uh, Sarah dies, and Abraham wants to be comforted with a concubine. So he's going off to this sheep shearing, almost like a festival, if you look at the context of the, of the culture, this place where they would go and, and shear their sheep and sell the wool and stuff, and he's going off to, to be comforted. He's looking for a woman at this festival. And Tamar hears of what's happened, that he's vulnerable. He's looking for a woman to be comforted since his wife's death. She is a rightful 
matriarch in the family, based on the marriage of Er and Onan, she deserves a seed to have offspring with this family. And so she goes to the sheep shearing festival and she waits. She covers her face with a veil. And she stands at the corner where the prostitutes like to hang out. And who catches her eye? But Judah. The same one who chose her so many years ago for her beauty. And he wants her. And so she says, well, what are you going to give me? She has a plan, right? She, she knows that she can't just get pregnant by a stranger uh, or she herself will be guilty of some type of immorality. So she needs a plan. He says, I'll give you a goat, a young goat. She says, that sounds good. Why don't you give me something you can sort of pawn off until you can go and get that goat and bring it to me. And Judah is in full lust mode. His brain is turned off and his body is turned on. And he says, I'll give you my signet ring. I'll give you my staff. I'll give you whatever you want. And we see the craving of the flesh that led to his being deceived. So, she gets pregnant. She takes his stuff. She leaves. And then, in verse 20, Judah sends his Adulamite friend, Hira, to go and give the goat. Go find the prostitute whom I met down at the sheep shearing festival. Give her the goat. He can't find her, right? Where is she at? And there's some interesting language, a prostitute versus a cult prostitute. Um, you know, this was, this was probably a um, part of her scheme um, because uh, the Adulamite, Hira, was going to look for a cult prostitute which would have been um, used as a form of worship rather than just sexual gratification. Um, and she was not one of those. And so I think that was part of her, her plan. But anyways... Um, so she's not there. He can't find her. He comes back and he says, she's not there. And Judah says, well, she can keep all those things as her own. I would rather not be found out that I pursued this prostitute and be laughed at than try to go on a hunt for her and people find out what I've done. He's now concerned about his own reputation because he knows he's done something wrong. There are several things to think about here. Um, and the first one is breaking promises, right? Judah says, you can have my third son when he grows up. I'll take care of you, but you need to go and stay at your father's house. Time passes by. No marriage contract is kept. His promise was broken. Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5, to let your yes be yes, your no be no, Anything else, Jesus says, is evil. Anything else is evil. Any, any way that Judah might have thought this was justifiable in his own brain was not. It was evil. Jesus says again in Matthew chapter 12, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Do people know you as trustworthy? 
When you say you will do this thing, do you do that thing? Or are you after your own gain, your own reputation, building your own empire, no matter the cost? The Lord judges us, according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, with our words just as much as our actions. The sins you commit with your hands are no worse than the sins you commit with your mouth. This includes vile talk, ugly speech, foul things that come out of our mouths. Ephesians tells us clearly to let no filthy language come out of your mouth, which includes lying, deceit, being double-tongued. Elders are not to be this way. Sometimes, somehow that's made it into like the last three sermons. Elders are called to let their yes be yes and their no be no. This is, the, this is the posture of the church. We don't lie. We love the truth, and so we speak the truth. But then we also need to talk about sexual desire, which is a, a thing that's come up over and over and over and over again, and was something that, that came up in that, that podcast I listened to. And uh, Mark Driscoll was not discharged for any uh, sexual sins, but um, he taught on sex a lot, and his fundamental teaching on sex was basically... Man has desires that need to be met, and that's what wives are for. He and Judah would have got along great, right? Is this a good theology of intimacy? Loving your wife as your own body? Laying down your life for her? Of course not. This is manipulative, right? And and again, we contrast this with Joseph in chapter 39 who doesn't want to get in bed with Potiphar's wife so much that he runs through the streets naked, right? He leaves his robe behind. He flees sexual immorality. And, and listen, I know this is why Jude, uh, Tamar gets a bad rap because of what she does here. It's weird. It's a little sketchy. She shows up as a prostitute. She receives him, and it's a lot like Leah, right? Uh, when, when, when she um, deceives uh, Isaac, right? Um, or uh, Jacob, Jacob, when she deceives Jacob into laying with her instead of Rachel. Like, how do you not know? How do you not realize this is Tamar? How do you not recognize her voice and, 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 and see her? Uh, prostitution is really bad. And it's not something that we should take flippantly. And I'm not just reading chapter 38 and being like, she did a good thing. It's fine. Like, this, this was not okay, right, in general. It's a shame, though, that she had to go about the manner that she did because of Judah's sin. She was a rightful um, matriarch to the seed. She'd been married in, and she was going to get the seed one way or another. And it's amazing how Judah was so worried about his own reputation. He did not want to be laughed at or found out that this old man was going and seeking a prostitute at the sheep shearing festival. And then look what he does in verse 24. Verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. If, if you don't, if, if, if you want a really, really clear picture of hypocrisy, right, here you go. I don't need to give you any sermon illustrations. This whole passage is a sermon illustration, okay? 
Judah goes and seeks a prostitute and then finds out that her, his daughter-in-law, which is amazing that he still considers her that, is pregnant, and there's no man in the picture, pregnant by immorality, which is bad, by the way, right? This was bad. Pregnancy, out of wedlock, out of any type of union. We rejoice in all life, but this is still bad today, right? But Judah's hypocrisy to say after going and receiving a prostitute just three months ago, says burn her at the stake? Kill her? Burn her alive with the child? What a grievous sin. What grievous hypocrisy Judah participates in. John Calvin uh, speaks in his commentary on this passage, something he said often in his ministry. He said, the Lord speaks often of fornication in the scriptures, but it's something that the heart of man knows is wrong which is why we hide it, and we hide it, and we hide it, and we hide it. He says, fornication is condemned by the common sense of men. So he's ready to burn her, and at the same time he's ready to hide his sin because he also deserves to be burned alive. And, and, and remember, Tamar committed no adultery because he was a widower. His wife was not living, right? We could point back at Tamar and say, well, she did something bad too, but his wife had already passed. She deserved the seed. And here's the deal of this whole strange passage, right? Is that the Lord was going to provide for Judah or for Tamar, regardless of Judah's behavior. The Lord was going to provide for her even when others were not. You know, the Lord provides for us even when the circumstances around us say, well, I'm not getting out of this alive, right? Regardless of our employers, how they treat us, uh, their income that is justified or not justified, our spouses who don't love us well, husbands who are sorry and pitiful like Aaron and Onan who don't take care of their wives and don't take responsibility. God says, I'll take care of you. You look at the lilies of the field. You look at the grass. You look at the flowers. You look at the birds. They don't, they don't weep. They're not anxious. I take care of them. I'm going to take care of you. Well, thankfully, we, we get a little bit of that you know, good dopamine when uh, Judah gets sort of found out, right? In, uh, and, and this is the third uh, display of God's character here. The Lord loves to humble the proud. The Lord loves to humble the proud. She says, I'm pregnant by the man to whom these belong. And so she brings out the signet ring, the cord, the staff. And what does Judah say in verse 26? She is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And then he did not know her again. The Lord loves to humble the proud. Here was Judah thinking that he was more righteous than anyone. Ready to burn 
a woman and her child for her immorality, who was a family member. And here, he comes back and has to admit that she was more righteous than me. Not only did she do right and I did wrong, but she had more integrity, she had more truth, she had altogether more godliness. She was a keeper of truth while he was a keeper of lies. He was a hypocrite. She was not. And Calvin again says about hypocrisy in times like these, here we see men who are not governed by the Spirit of God are always more solicitous about the opinion of the world than about the judgment of God. For why, when the lust of the flesh excited him, did it not come to his mind, Behold, now I shall become vile in the sight of God and of angels. Or why, at least, after his lust has cooled, does he not blush at the secret knowledge of his sin? But he is secure if only he can protect himself from public infamy. This is the heart of hypocrisy. You and I, knowing the secret sins we commit, but keeping ourselves clean in the public eye. That is hypocrisy. And the Lord loves to put it in its place by really drastic means. And Jesus says, we have to be righteous if we're going to inherit the kingdom of God. He says to uh, his disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never see the kingdom of God. Righteousness is required to approach God's throne. You and I can never be righteous. That's the problem of sin. That, that's what total depravity means. It means it's got us to our core, right? There's no chance of us just cleaning ourselves off. We can't do it. Which is why Jesus says, your heart has to be made clean. They were clean on the outside, but the inside of the cup was filthy. The inside must be cleaned. And I think of... Uh, Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, one of my favorite scenes in the whole Bible. has to be, you know, one of yours as well. What does the Lord do to humble his hard heart? He literally turns him into an animal with hooves and fur and makes him eat grass to humble him before the Lord. Daniel chapter 4, go and read that. And you know what he does when he's turned back into a man? He praises God. He says, I was rebelling against you all along. And he gives the Lord praise, the one true God, Yahweh, denouncing his other Babylonian gods. And the scene is also like 1 Samuel 24. You look at hypocrisy again in the life of Saul. Saul, King Saul, who was constantly pursuing David, wanting to kill him. Um, and the, the Lord gave David two opportunities to go in and kill Saul. But what did he do? He cut off a slip of his garment and is like, look, you know, could have killed you and I didn't. And what does Saul say? You are clearly more righteous than I. Righteousness and integrity, we can't be righteous aside from Jesus, first of all. We are positionally righteous only by the blood of Jesus, right? None of us are sinless. And if anybody says you're sinless, like, y'all need to get a slap on the hand. Uh, it's not going to happen. We are not sanctified, made holy, pure until the Lord comes back. We see him. We are made like him. We are restored. We are purified. We are given a righteous robe to wear. Until then, we are fighting sin 
and putting it off uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, But this also means that righteousness can only be judged by the perfectly righteous judge, doesn't it? Who's the only one qualified to judge sin and righteousness? The only righteous one. Jesus, the one who was fully God and fully man and yet lived a perfect sinless life and died and rose from the dead, he's the only one qualified to judge sin and righteousness. He is the righteous one. 1 Samuel 16, the Lord sees not as man sees. The Lord sees the heart. We look for fruit. We warn each other. We call each other out of sin. But Jesus and Jesus alone knows the hypocrite from the person who is true. And how many of you have heard people say and have said yourself, so tired of hypocrisy in the church? Maybe you've been called a Pharisee or you've called other people a whole bunch of Pharisees. That church over there is nothing but a whole bunch of Pharisees. You know when the Bible talks about hypocrisy? It says, get the log out of your own eye. Stop looking at other people. But this is more fun, isn't it? And this is what YouTube preachers do. They just go down the list. This guy's a hypocrite. This guy's saying this thing, but he's not doing it. This guy's bad, and this guy's bad. What does the Bible do? The Bible says, open your eyes. Look at your deceitful heart. It's deceitful among all things. You are not who you say you are. Look at the righteousness of this woman dressed as a prostitute. She's closer to the kingdom of God than you'll ever be because of your sin. Which is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 21. We are the hypocrites. We shouldn't be proud of it. But we should be proud of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that covers all our hypocrisy. We've got to end real fast with this last one. There's a promise from the Lord with these children that are born. Verse 27. I promise I'll, I'll be quick. <clears throat> the time of her labor came. Tamar, she has twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Zerah. So, real quick, um, the scarlet thread. Have you ever heard that phrase? Outside of Genesis chapter 38? Anybody? Come on. Christology, the study of Jesus, Old Testament to New, there's a scarlet thread being traced from the very beginning. Jesus was with the Father, creating all things, life itself. Uh, man sinned against God. The Lord gives a promise that from the offspring of Eve, there will rise up uh, someone who will crush the head of the serpent, but his bruised or his heel will be bruised. And we're tracing that scarlet thread from Genesis to the Gospels till we finally get to Matthew. The scarlet thread is what we call that. And it must be derived from Genesis 38, um, which shows us the birth of these twins, which is an ongoing theme, right? Man, another Esau and Jacob incident. There are twins in there, but I think that's also the Lord being kind and favorable to Tamar. After all she's been through, the Lord gives her two sons, not just one. 
And so he gives her two sons, uh, but uh, the midwife sees one hand coming out and ties the scarlet thread and says, this one was the firstborn, but then he goes back inside and the other one comes out first and they name one Perez because he made a breach. Uh, Literally, he just got his way out first. And then Zerah, uh, which is sort of a play on words with the word scarlet. Uh, Zerah and um, I believe it's Zohar. So it's kind of the Hebrew has no vowels. I'm getting, I'm sorry. Zohar, Zerha, uh, scarlet, and um, uh, uh, Zerah, his name means to shine. So like the, the shining scarlet thread of what is going on here at Genesis 38 points us to an offspring that is to come from the line of Perez. We could also say that a breach was made when Christ came into the world. When he appeared through the offspring of Tamar, the Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, was born. And what did all the apostles call him? The firstborn of all creation, right? Uh, not meaning that the Lord created him, but meaning Romans eight twenty nine. He'd be the firstborn among many brothers. Death, life. He rose from the dead. We too will rise from the dead. He is the firstborn. He is the one that we trace the scarlet thread around his wrist from Genesis to the Gospels when he would come. And what beauty is in the color red but his own blood which would be shed for our sin, that our hypocrisy, our prostitution, our shame, our immorality would be cleansed, wiped away, remembered no more, and would, we, we would die to those things and be resurrected and be called brothers from the firstborn of all who is Christ. We would be adopted into his kingdom, into his family. The Lord will keep this promise. And Genesis 38 is a reminder that that is still going on. Don't forget, after all these crazy stories we've heard in Genesis, don't forget that this is still going on. It's not going to come through Reuben. It's not going to come through Joseph. It's not going to come through uh, any of the other brothers. It's going to come through Judah, through Tamar, through Perez. The Lord is coming. And he is going to crush sin once and for all. So, Tamar a hero or a villain? Well, you know, Ruth is another story of the kinsman redeemer, Law. Ruth was a widower, a widow. She finds Boaz. And as they're getting married, all the people gather together as witnesses. And here's what they say about Ruth's and Boaz's union. All the people who are at the gate, this is Ruth chapter 4, the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and like Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephratah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So we say in all of our unions, in our marriages, we wish you the blessing of Tamar and Perez who received 
a bounty of children, promised offspring the Lord gave to them, even through the sinfulness of man. If you do not know the blood of Jesus that covers sin, if you do not know the scarlet promise, He who came and lived a perfect life and died sinful, uh, a sinful death for, for us, who rose from the dead, I, I urge you to call on Him now. We are written into this story. We can become brothers with Christ and heirs of the very promises made in this text. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for um, these promises. Thank you for your goodness, your providence, your care for us. I pray that we would pursue uh, integrity in our marriages. We would run from immorality and adultery. We would run from hypocrisy, saying one thing but doing something else. Our words would be true. Our words would um, speak only what is uplifting and edifying for the body of Christ. Uh, And we pray that you would empower us to do all these things and more through him who conquered, through him who uh, came, the scarlet promise, um, who sought not to build an empire for himself, but to magnify the Father's name alone, uh, who boasted only in him. Uh, I pray, Father, that uh, uh, we through Him, through the Holy Spirit, uh, would live lives um, empowered by the righteousness of Jesus. Um, And I I pray, Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper, we would see this promise come to fruition. We would see our own sin, our immorality, uh, our failures, um, and we would take the bread and the cup in a manner worthy and uh, in a way that portrays and proclaims um, the amazing gift of the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to take the Lord's Supper now. Um, uh, Stephen, if you'll play some music for us. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.